All right, Genesis chapter 20, if you haven't turned there yet, if you could join me there in your Bibles in Genesis 20. You know, Genesis chapter 20 and 21, if you read ahead, again, almost sort of gives us this contrast of really what you could almost say is the uh, the failure of men in our humanity, and we all have the potential and propensity to fail and to stumble in the weakness of our flesh, even as God's children and as followers of the Lord. And it really sets in contrast the failure of man and the faithfulness of God. And all the more the failure of men and how even the failure of men in our flesh and weakness doesn't negate and and stop the faithfulness of God to still accomplish his purposes and plans by his grace and to fulfill his word, not because of our performance or our merit or our worth of his faithfulness or fulfillment of his plans, but because what God determines, uh, God does. And what God promises, God performs. What he speaks with his mouth, the Bible says he performs with his hand. And so oftentimes it's in spite of us. And even though we do have our shortcomings and detours and stumblings that God still is gracious to us and he still ultimately brings about his purposes in our lives in so many ways and we really see that contrast of of man's weakness and failures and yet God's great faithfulness especially as we get to chapter 21 and we see God then finally fulfilling his promise with uh, Abraham remember the last sort of encouragement God had given to Abraham's heart to Abraham and Sarah is that he had visited them in chapter 18 and told them After a long period of time of waiting, some 20 plus years waiting on the promise of God, that God had told them that within the next year, God said, Genesis 18, 10, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life and behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. So God's really narrowed down this progressive revelation. Uh, As they walk with the Lord, God continues to confirm his promise. He reaffirms his plan for them repeatedly throughout the process of this journey of walking by faith and patiently waiting for the promise of God. And now the Lord has given to them a real treasure to hold on to because he's told them recently that within the time frame of a year, he's gotten a little more specific with them now and told them that they actually can expect that according to the time of life, within the next year, God has told them that they're going to conceive and to have this child, that Sarah is going to conceive and give birth to this son, who were they to name Isaac, which meant, remember, laughter, because they sort of just chuckled at the reality that at the great age that they were, that God was somehow going to miraculously give a child to this hundred-year-old man and this 90-year-old woman whose bodies were way past the capacity physically to be able to bear children and to give life and birth to any child somehow. And with that backdrop, we now come to chapter 20, and it's almost sort of shocking. It's almost as if as you read these events, you're thinking to yourself, how could this possibly be? Look what begins to unfold. It says, and Abraham, chapter 20, verse 1, journeyed from there to the south, and he dwelt between Kadesh and Shur. So he begins to travel south now down through the Negev, about uh, 40, 45 miles south as he's moving, uh, journeying south now. And it says he stayed. The idea is he chose to reside for a time in Gerar, which is basically the, was the capital of the Philistine territory at that time. Now, 
We know historically archaeologists have discovered Gerar was a very prosperous city. It was a very affluent area at that time in that ancient culture. As I said, it was the capital city of the Philistine people at that time. What we don't know, and simply because the scripture is silent, is what was the reason for this journey of Abraham to go south now and to go down into Philistine territory. He's going down now once again toward the Egyptian border. He doesn't enter into Egypt. Yes, he still is in within the confines of the promised land. Remember when God laid out for him the dimensions and parameters geographically of where the promised land would be. He's still within that. But he's getting now close to the Egyptian border, going south, and he's in the capital city of the Philistines. Now, it could be any number of reasons. It could be that he's trying to create some distance between himself uh, and Sodom and Gomorrah, where, remember, God has just rained down fire and judgment. Uh, it could be, again, Abraham, remember, being a man of great wealth, lots of servants, a nomad moving around the area as well, traveling around. It could be that Abram was going down Gerar to do some type of business, and there were some business affairs that he wanted to attend to, that uh, going down to that territory. We, we, we don't know exactly what it is. We have no mention of Abraham seeking the Lord, of God directing him to go there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that his going there in and of itself was wrong. But we find him now in this place where unfortunately the devil is going to prey upon a weakness in the life of Abraham, this son of God, this believer who walked with God faithfully. Remember who we've been talking about is the friend of God. And the devil is going to really manipulate and prey upon a weakness in Abraham's life. And this doesn't surprise me because where is Abraham? I mean, Abraham is 25 to 30 years into this walk-in relationship with God, and he's very close, extremely close, to God fulfilling his promise and opening this whole thing wide open and really beginning to pour out his blessing upon the Jews and the nation of Israel and really beginning to unfold this plan that God has had in his mind for all of eternity and to orchestrate it through Abraham's life. So it doesn't surprise me that it's at this point that the devil subtly begins to turn up the volume, if you would, and to begin to increase his opposition because whenever we are getting very close to the Lord beginning to unfold and do something in our lives, you better expect, I better plan on the fact that those are going to be the occasions when the devil is going to intensify his endeavors to try and trip us up and to ensnare us. Why? Because he wants to thwart the promises of God. Because he wants to dissuade us. Because he wants to distract us. He wants to hinder what he's going to do. He wants to see if he can allow us to to fumble, in a sense, rather than to go in triumphantly. And, and this, sadly, is another spot in Scripture where we see, again, we can't blame it all on the devil, but certainly we understand spiritual realities. And the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that, that we do have an adversary, we do have a devil. And, and no doubt, recognizing that Abraham was the line through which the Messiah, the Messianic promise, would be fulfilled— the devil is always, we see in Scripture, attacking anything that has to do with the messianic line of Jesus Christ because he wants to hinder and stop that. Whether it was through the, the natural line, which would give birth to Jesus and to pollute it, or whether it be through the work of Jesus in our lives still to this day. This is what the devil brings resistance against. And sadly, we see Abraham here. Look at verse 2. It says, Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, can you believe this? She is my sister. 
And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. The idea is he sent and he took Sarah into his harem. Now, you read that, and I read and think, wait, that's got to be a misprint, right? I mean, did a publisher just mess up something in my Bible somehow? I mean, wait, wait a minute, that's that sounds way too familiar. That couldn't possibly be so here, that, that, that we would read such a thing. Here is Abraham, and we read it, and in our humanity, the natural inclination is to go, what? You've got to be kidding me. Here he is repeating the exact same thing that he did, how long? 25 to 30 years prior. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, after he came into the promised land, when he was a rather new convert at that time. And and in some senses, we can give a little more uh, maybe liberty or grace in that season of his life. God had just revealed himself to Abraham. He just met the one true and living God. He was following God's calling. A famine struck the land, remember Genesis chapter 12, and under the pressure of the circumstances, Abraham's faith maybe not being as mature and strong uh, and, and not understanding exactly how the ways of the Lord work, he had a lapse of faith then as well. Let's not act like it wasn't an act of disobedience, but he didn't pray, remember, under compulsion and fear. He reacted. He took his family down into Egypt, which is never a good thing. And when he went down into Egypt, remember, he did the same thing. He told Sarah, look, when we get down there, I understand how the Egyptians and those in this ancient culture work. Listen, they do not believe in adultery. However, they have no problem with murder. (laughs) And the way they solve that is they just murder the husband and then... She's a free candidate as a widow, so rather than commit adultery, that was too immoral for them, they would just murder the husband and then take the wife for themselves. So Abraham said, look, please, when we get down there, do me a favor. Say that you're, remember, my sister, so that my life will be spared. And he went into this self-preservation mode, and rather than take into consideration the interests of his wife or do the thing that would be right in the situation. He tries to connive and to manipulate, and and in fear, he kind of takes this detour off course from the plan of God. He kind of walks away from God's plan for a while. And remember, the Lord brings everything to light. He reproves and rebukes Abraham and, and the whole situation there. And what does God do? God intervenes. He spares them. He doesn't let anything happen to Sarah. She's given back to Abraham. They're kicked out. He just said, take your wife and get out of here, man. You know, and, and, and they go back in this long, probably very awkward, quiet journey, you know, back up to the, to the promised land where, where they're back up there. And, and, and no doubt thinking, man, thank goodness. God is so gracious. He's so merciful. That was so foolish. And yet in the midst of our foolishness and our, our, our going off course, God bailed us out and he was gracious and he protected us and he got us out of the whole situation. And yet here we find Abraham now repeating the exact same sin 25 to 30 years later in his life. And what's even more difficult to swallow here is it doesn't seem there's any compelling reason for it this time. It doesn't say there was a famine, so therefore he had to go down to Gerar. He just happens to, for whatever reason, again, we can only speculate, he goes to a territory, however, which is not you know, a territory he's familiar with, and there's a lot of presence of ungodliness around him. And in his fear, this just seemed to be a weakness of Abraham, he got his eyes off of the Lord. And he began to look at the circumstances around him at the time and the situation that he was facing. And as he got his eyes off of the Lord, fear 
flooded into his heart, the opposite of faith, and when his eyes were off the Lord and fear flooded his heart, he began to make choices and decisions that were completely contrary to the will of God and to the ways of God. And again, we have Abraham telling his wife, look, let's just come up with this story. Let's lie. Say you're my sister. Don't say you're my wife. And Abimelech, now king of Gerar, takes Sarah into his harem. And Abraham, what's he doing? Number one, he's jeopardizing his wife. He's putting his wife at risk, and he's jeopardizing his wife's welfare. He's looking out for his own interests and not even considering the effect this is going to have on his wife. He's putting her at risk. But more than that, not that that's something to be played down, but he is jeopardizing the entire plan of God. Think about it. What did God say? Through Sarah, through Sarah, the promise shall come. Sarah will conceive and give birth to a son, and it was through that son that that son would be the son of promise, and the messianic line would come through Isaac, and now Sarah has been taken into the harem of this ungodly king, and if they have normal relations, there's going to be a whole diluted, confused, polluted idea of whose child really is that that Sarah's carrying. She's impregnated, but how do we know it's Abraham? Because she went into the... For all he knows, too, what if he never saw his wife again? What if he took her into the harem and that was it? Again, what is he doing? God just said through this this vessel, through this vehicle, this is where the promise is going to come. And he's casting the whole thing away. He's, he's In essence, he's almost giving away God's promise and saying, well, he's kind of just turning over God's promise and letting go of the whole thing. And just putting the whole thing in jeopardy by doing this. What an amazing, amazing thing to recognize Abraham is doing this. And what a great reminder to all of us of just the reality that it does not matter how long we've been walking with the Lord. Listen, we always have the potential to fail. We always have the capacity to make poor decisions, to enter into sins. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when we think we stand, he says, take heed lest you fall. And he says that proceeding, no temptation has seized you except such as common to man. God is faithful. When you're tempted, God won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able. But, but with that temptation, he'll provide a way of escape that you can bear up under it. But the verse prior to that is he says, look, when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. It's when we begin to think, hey, you know, I, mean, I seem to be pretty strong. I seem to be pretty successful. And Abraham's had a lot of success. I mean, we've looked at this man's life. He's had an incredible walk with God. He's seen the power of God. He's seen the faithfulness of God. He's seen God fulfilling promises and working on his behalf for 25 years. But listen, 25 years of successful relationship and walking with God in victory does not guarantee victory tomorrow. It doesn't. <laughs> Because the same flesh resides there and we have the potential to fail at any given moment. And Abraham is just a reminder that even God's people stumble, even God's people fail at times. And this just seemed to be an area for Abraham that was a real weakness. And he found himself at times falling prey to this. And there are areas in our lives. Maybe it's not what it was for Abraham, you know, fear or lying. You know, the Bible says that the fear of man brings a snare. And, and that was Abraham's problem. He, he, at times he feared man more than he feared God. But maybe you know the thing in your life. Maybe there's a particular thing in your life that in the past was something that was really just an area where, where you tend to have a greater struggle. And it's, it's different for all of us. But we have to identify those things and realize, hey, those are the things that I need to constantly stay on guard against. 
to realize that I have the ability to slip right back into that in any way at any point in my time. And Abraham here jeopardizing his wife, jeopardizing the plan of God with Sarah being taken into this harem. Look at verse 3, but again, here's the demonstration of God's faithfulness despite our human failures. But God, verse 3, came to Abimelech in a dream by night. Now, Abimelech is the title. It's not necessarily a name. Abimelech, like Pharaoh, is a title for the Egyptians. Abimelech isn't necessarily a name as much as a title, uh, referring to the king of Gerar, this Philistine king. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and look what he said to him. Indeed, you are a dead man, <laughs> because the woman you have taken for she is a man's wife. And don't you love the way that God, even when we are really flubbing things up and making a mistake, that, that God comes right in and, and he makes sure things stay on task. God always protects his plan. God always protects his program. And God, oh no, what is Abraham? God just steps right in and overrides and gets involved, and he goes to this pagan king, and he reveals himself to a dream at night, and 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 says to him, "You're a dead man. <laughs> the woman you just took into your harem—that is another man's wife. That's not his sister. I don't care what he told you. That is another man's wife." Now I love this because not only is God protecting His plan, but it shows me the incredible priority and value God puts on marriage. I love this. That God highly esteems marriage. Hebrews chapter 13 says, marriage is honorable among all. And it says, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In other words, the Bible highly esteems the marriage relationship. And God very zealously and with with a loving jealousy guards marriage. He takes it very serious. You know, and when somebody thinks, oh, what's the big deal? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm flirting with so-and-so's husband or, or I'm actually having, you know, uh, a dating relationship or I'm having sexual relations in an affair with someone else's wife. Well, well, God says, look, you have taken someone else's wife. That's not your wife. That's not your husband. And it doesn't matter what the world says and it doesn't matter what people justify in their lustful emotions and God says no that is someone else's wife that is someone else's husband the Bible says what God is joined let not man separate God takes it very seriously and here God says to this guy you're dead <laughs> you're a dead man if you don't God's very severely warning Abimelech here even though he's kind of the you know, the, the, the casualty the, the, in the process as he's kind of been deceived. But Abimelech, verse 4, had not come near her. And he said, Lord, again, this is a part of this dream and revelation he's having. Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In other words, I'm just going off of the story they told me. In the integrity of my heart, he says, and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And in some senses, that was true. And the wonderful thing is, is that God does know our heart. 
God does know in certain situations, we can't con God. God knows when something's happened in innocence and when we've made a sincere mistake, but he also knows when we are sincerely justifying something that we do know. And, and this, this is, a, again, God saying, look, I know in this situation that you were sincerely deceived, but God knows as well when we are just blowing smoke, and it's quite the opposite. But God says, I, I know that this is what's happened. But God said to him, verse 6, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. He says, For I also, verse 6, withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I like that. God says, I, I saw what was happening, and I intervened, and I intervened in such a way, and, and we see some of the ways as we go through the chapter that God does, but God says, yes, I, because I saw that this was a sincere misunderstanding and misinterpretation because they misrepresented themselves to you when they came, God says, because of that, I intervened, and in my preservation, I withheld you from sinning. Interesting, look what it says, though, sinning against me. Now, we might say, well, that, no, that would be sinning against Abraham because it's his wife. Or that would be sinning against Sarah because you're taking advantage. But God looks at sin as against himself. Remember when David sinned and entered into moral failure with Bathsheba and he ended up stealing her, who was Uriah's wife, remember? And he slept with Bathsheba and committed adultery. And then afterwards, uh, he sent and he had Uriah, her husband, brought back from the battlefield because she got pregnant. And then David was trying to cover up the whole thing. And so for a period of time, he was pulling all these strings and doing everything he could. He, then he sent Uriah out to the battlefield and said, hey, pull the forces back. Let the guy get killed. And then I'll just marry her real quick. And then it'll just look like, well, we got married and we had it. And he was trying to pull this whole cover up. When God finally broke David... After a period of when he just could not live under the sin and guilt he was in anymore, David's words, remember he said to God, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Again, David understood, as he wrote in the Psalms regarding his confession, Lord, my sin, it's against you. Sin is against God. Do our sins affect one another? Absolutely. Do our sins hurt and harm people? Most certainly, and, and to an incredible extent sometimes. Sin is always painful and causes problems and hurts and wounds people. But the truth of the matter is, and the thing we have to be most greatly concerned about, is not that I sin against you and did you sin against me, but we have sinned against God. You see God's perspective towards sin? God says here, I kept you from sinning against me. You might say in a secondary sense, our sins are against people as well. And so we need to forgive and apologize and make restitution when we hurt and, and offend one another. But, but here God says, I kept you from sinning against me, therefore I didn't let you touch her. And again, I love how God intervenes. What's God doing? God's protecting his plan. God is protecting and preserving so that the attack of the devil and the weakness of man's flesh and his sinfulness is not disrupting his plan. God is still going to fulfill his plan. God will always protect his plan. God will always fulfill his program. We may make royal major failures, but the Bible we read says the wrath, God will cause the wrath of man to praise him. God still always protects his plan and performs his processes. And here God was restraining Abimelech from having any relations or any physical contact with her. 
and sinning against him. And he tells him, listen, I'm aware what happened. I withheld you from sinning against me. What a great encouragement of God's preservation. That we need to learn how to depend on the Lord to keep us from sinning. You know, certainly there is a dimension of cooperation where we keep ourselves pure and we walk in the Spirit. But the Bible tells us in Jude that he is able to keep you and me from stumbling and present us faultless. And, and, and our prayer should be, Lord, keep me from sinning against you. Lord, keep me, preserve me, help me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do what you need to do in, in my life, God. You know, get in the way and, and interrupt things. And, and you know, I, I love the spot there in the book of Chronicles where one of the kings, he had a real problem with making wrong alliances, and his memory alludes, his name alludes my memory right now, with making wrong alliances with, uh, you know, uh, other nations. And, 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 and it ultimately says that he made ships to sail together on these projects with another pagan king, and it says, and, and God wrecked the ships. God kept sinking his ships. And you know, I look at that, and, and, and I think of that for my own life. Lord, if I'm ever creating ships that take little journeys into things that I should, Lord, would you please just destroy my ships? You know, just, just wreck them before they even have any opportunity to take off on their voyages. Just wreck my ship. I pray that for my kids. Lord, if you see them about ready to take a journey, just intervene destroy their ships you know just send a storm and break them up on the docks and and what a wonderful thing to know god can do that and here god was keeping things from happening that would have been way more devastating long term had they had sexual relations god was preserving the purity of sarah and intervening to keep from this happening verse seven now therefore god gives instruction to abimelech he says here's your responsibility restore the man's wife for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So God says, listen, this is my servant. Interesting, God calls Abraham still his prophet. And he says to Abimelech, this man is my prophet, restore his wife, and he'll come pray for you. And then you will live. In other words, the judgment of God that was looming over him would be taken off of him personally and off of his nation. And I'm sure Abimelech's here is thinking, excuse me? He's a prophet? Him pray for me? What, are you kidding me? You know. But again, what do you have here? You have God dealing with a pagan man. And even though one of his servants has failed, God is still saying to this pagan man, yes, my servant has, has failed. I recognize that you're going to realize that. But that does not excuse you from personal responsibility before me. Had Abraham failed? Yeah, he did. I mean, he really kind of misrepresented the Lord. He set a pretty bad example, and he kind of really tainted his testimony. He kind of really misrepresented the Lord. But a lot of times, what happens? Pagan people like Abimelech, they want to use that as ammunition to say, well, because God calls himself a prophet or this person calls himself a Christian, and do you know what they said or what they did and how that had an effect upon me? And, and God says, listen, listen, I'm sorry about that. But that doesn't excuse you from personal responsibility before the living God. Here God says to him, listen, you still have a responsibility. I've revealed myself to you, and you still have to choose to respond yourself. But nonetheless, from Abraham's perspective, interesting that God's not necessarily discussing Abraham's sin with Abimelech. 
He's talking to Abimelech about the issues of his own life. And remember that. You know, you don't see God here talking about Abraham's sin with Abimelech. God will talk to Abraham about his own sin, and he's talking to Abimelech. God is more than able by his Holy Spirit to speak to people about their failures and mistakes in their own lives. God here, in essence, represents still quite well Abraham, though he had made some failures. God still, love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says, says he is a prophet, and yes, he's failed. But he is one who my anointing is upon. He is my prophet. And therefore, God says, call for him. He will pray for you. Restore his wife. And if you don't, God says, then you will die, all in those who are with you. So Abimelech, it says, verse 8, rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. So the fear of God came upon him and all his people. And notice he, he's quickly obeying. He gets up first thing in the morning. He's ready to obey what he has just heard the voice of God say. Verse 9, And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great Sin. Imagine how ashamed and embarrassing this must have been. As now this unbeliever, this pagan man, is having to rebuke God's servant. Really a really sad, embarrassing thing when the ungodly and pagan people have to rebuke God's people for the choices they're making and the things that they're doing. Man, that's really embarrassing. That's really quite quite shameful. And, and that, sadly, what's happening here, Abraham is being rebuked and chided. He says, what have you done? He says, how, how did I offend you that you've brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? He said, look at this verse 9, you have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Boy, I hope that's never said of me or you as God's people. That some unbeliever would say, you have done things to me that nobody should have ever done to me. Especially if we're the one that's supposed to be representing the Lord. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? In other words, he's saying, what in the world were you thinking? Modern vernacular, what were you thinking, Abraham? What did you have in view? I'll tell you what Abraham had in view. You know what Abraham had in view? Abraham. That was the mistake. What Abraham had in view was himself. He didn't have the Lord in his view. He didn't have his wife in view. He didn't have the glory of God or the reputation of God as a testimony in view. The only thing Abraham had in view when he made these choices was himself. And whenever the thing we have in view is ourself and we're being self-centered and we're caring about self-preservation and what's best for me, we're always on a pathway to making a really big mess to really misrepresenting the Lord, hurting and harming people in the process. Abraham said, verse 11, again, he's trying to justify. He says, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife. Again, he knew how the culture worked. But again, he's saying, and again, what's Abraham doing? He's trying to justify things. He's trying to make excuses. And we know this. We all do this at times rather than just embracing our mistakes sometimes we want to try and rationalize well the reason i did this was and you look what abraham's saying 
he says, I realized when I was coming to this area, these people around here don't fear God. It's almost as if Abram says, well, I mean, if it wasn't for the way that this place is and you people are, I would have never done this. It's kind of your fault. It's kind of your fault. Again, this reminds us of exactly what Proverbs 29, 25 says. You know, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord, the Bible says, shall be safe or established. Whenever we begin to have the fear of man and what may happen to us, rather than trusting the Lord, that will always ensnare us. We'll always start doing foolish things when we fear man more than we fear God. The Bible says, trust the Lord. That's the route to safety because God can preserve us. You know, if, if we find ourselves in a spot where it looks like being faithful to the Lord is going to bring you know, consequences or things that are concerning us. Listen, that is the time to trust the Lord and to walk it out in faith. Don't allow yourself to be in that spot where you go, man, if I do the right thing in this situation, then that means this might happen or or, or, or something may be of risk in my life, my reputation, or I may lose money or I may, you know, and we, our minds, and that's the fear of man. Listen, don't, that's a snare. Do what's righteous because that's what's right. And trust God with the consequences. The Bible says that's the route to safety. We do the right thing the right way. And we take a stand for righteousness. And we say, Lord, I'm going to do what's righteous here. You're going to have to take care of the rest. I don't know how this is going to pan out. When I say the right thing or I do the right thing, people may not understand. The culture may not agree with it. And this does not look like a path to prosperity and to peacefulness, but Lord, I'm going to do the right thing anyway. That's the right thing to do. Abraham doesn't do that, and he's trying to rationalize what's going on here. He says, I said the fear of God's not in this place, and they'll kill me on account of my wife. Look how he goes on, verse 12. But indeed, she is, he says, truly my sister, for she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So he's talking about how, and this was true, that, that Sarah by relation, was, in a sense, a half-sister. They shared the same father, but a different mother. And in that culture, prior to the time of the law of Moses, when such things were prohibited, it was natural, it was normal to to marry those who were close relatives. Later, it's prohibited in the law of Moses. But this was something of how Abraham admits that he and Sarah did have some connection. What's Abraham trying to do? He's kind of trying to to put a little spin on this, to give it there's a little, there's kind of a half truth to that, you know. It's, I mean, it's not a whole. I mean, it's kind of half true. I mean, she is kind of my half sister, and, and just like we, you know, we always try and put a little spin on something. And 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 well, I mean, I, I gave you half of the information. I mean, yeah, I withheld this, this, and this, but I gave you half of the story, and it's well, half truth is the same thing as a whole lie, and, and we need to be careful of this kind of excuse making and rationalizing Abraham's trying to again he's trying to appease his own conscience is what he's doing and it came to pass verse 13 he says when God calls me to wander from my father's house that I said to her to Sarah years ago this is the kindness he says Sarah look God's called us to go to a strange country but he says listen do me this kindness would you honey he says is my wife he says in every place wherever we go you're so beautiful and you can just hear him, honey, you're so beautiful, and I love you so much, and I can't imagine being without you. I, I can't imagine you making it if I get killed somehow. So he says, do me this kindness. Wherever we go, in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. So this was a plan that was 
enacted a long time ago, as soon as they started following the call of God, Abraham connived this little plan of how they were going to deal with certain situations with this particular little trick sort of up their sleeves. What is it? Abraham made a provision for the flesh, and he kept using it periodically through his life. You know, the Bible tells us, make no provision for the flesh. That's what this little plan was. Wherever we go, you know, just always keep saying that you're my sister. Listen, don't do this kind of stuff. Don't make provisions for your flesh. Don't make little loopholes and escape routes where you can justify and rationalize because you're going to leave yourself a constant open door, an escape hatch to go back to the old life, to go back to the ways of the world. Don't do that kind of stuff. The Bible says don't make provisions for the flesh. And, and here Abraham, in essence, is through his excuses, revealing that's exactly what he and Sarah had done. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And then he said to Sarah, Behold, I've given your brother, I almost wonder if he said that with a little bit of cynicism, you know, instead of your husband, I've given your brother, <laughs> I've given your brother, you know, when, when ungodly people are offended, they, they get a little cynical towards us. I've given your brother, he says, a thousand pieces of silver, and indeed this vindicates you before all who are with you and everybody, and thus she was rebuked. So she was reproved for her participation in this as well by Abimelech. Verse 17, so Abraham prayed to God, and God, notice, healed Abimelech, his wife, his female servants, and then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of, of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So because of what happened, somehow some plague, something took place of the judgment of God that was happening to reveal that something was wrong in Abimelech's kingdom at that time. And, and, and why was it? It was the direct result of the disobedience of a man of God was causing hurt and harm and problems, not just for himself personally, but for all the other people he had impact and influence and contact with. Everybody in Abimelech's household, it says here, him, his wife, his female servants, all the house of Abimelech, they were all barren. They were having problems and struggling, and they were seeming infertile and having difficulties in their life as the result of Abraham's sin and disobedience. You know, Spurgeon said this. It's a great quote. He said, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. And that is so true, and I'm glad for that. That whenever we begin to sin or do things wrong and walk in disobedience, God won't let us succeed. He makes it fail and he makes it as miserable as possible for us because he's trying to get our attention. The sad thing is not only does, does it hurt and harm us personally, robs our peace with God and ruins our relationship with the Lord, but the greater travesty is, is the, you know, the residual effects, the ripple effect when people become collateral damage, and remember just like Jonah, when Jonah was disobeying the Lord and he got on the ship and he sailed the opposite direction, every single person that was on board with Jonah was suffering and going through that storm and all their lives were at risk because he was on the boat and he was the one in disobedience and taking everybody with him in the wrong direction. 
And here we see Abraham, same thing. And listen, there's a lot at stake when we as a child of God begin to walk in disobedience before the Lord. It's not, oh, it's, it's my life. It's my relationship with the Lord. I'll take responsibility. No. You are dragging your husband, your wife, your children, your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, and to whatever extent you influence and have contact with other people around you, other Christians, other people in the world, the influence of that is affecting them as well. In ways it hurts and harms them too, and this was the case. Well, God here, amazing. Again, talk about his grace. He uses Abraham's prayers to bring about his healing. Man, even in the midst of failure, God's still using this guy. And this is just astonishing to consider the grace of God despite what's going on. Verse 20, uh, Chapter 21, verse 1 says, And the Lord, and again, keep this as a backdrop now, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So consider what Abraham and Sarah just did. They almost totally polluted the plan of God. They put the whole thing in jeopardy. Again, here goes God. <laughs> He's off on the rescue mission again. Here go the kids. They're, you know, in the wrong neighborhood again. You know, God in his grace, he goes on the rescue mission. He snatches them out of the fire. He protects his plan. He guards his program. He intervenes. He does what he has to do to stay in control of everything. He gets them reproved. He brings them out of it. And then what does God do? It's at that point, he heaps his biggest blessing upon them and shows them incredible grace as he then still fulfills the plan of God in their life and still accomplishes his purposes. And, you know, what an incredible thing to realize that chapter 21 comes with the backdrop of chapter 20 that we just looked at. Man, talk about God's grace. The Bible says, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And a lot of times when we are at our least deserving moments in life, you ever notice that's when God, like, drops the biggest blessing on us. You ever had that happen? Maybe, maybe I'm the one who understands it. There have been times where I, I'm a total jerk, and I, I don't I deserve the absolute worst at that moment in my journey and practical walk with the Lord. And that's when he lops the biggest blessing on you just to make you realize this has nothing to do with anything you deserve. It has everything to do with I'm a gracious God, and I make plans, and I give promises, and I fulfill them for my purposes and my glory, and in spite of you. I still do my works. You know, the Bible says the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And here God still uses Abraham and Sarah. He still fulfills his purposes in this beautiful way. The Lord visited Sarah, and he said, it says, as he said, the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken after 25 years. Man, can you imagine how wonderful that must have felt? After 25 years waiting on the promise of God. Peaks and valleys in a spiritual life. Abraham had them just like you and I. And after 25 years, the Lord did as he had spoken. If God has spoken something to you, God has promised something for you, it may take a long period of time, but God will do what God has declared to you. God will fulfill his promise. God will fulfill his plan. The Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. She conceived, and Hebrews 11 says that she as well, 
participated by having faith like Abraham. Hebrews 11.11 tells us about Sarah's faith. And it says she bore a son to Abraham, interesting, in his old age. You know, the Bible understands how ladies are. It's not about her old age. His old age. She's 90. He's 100. But this was a son in his old age. Notice, however, verse 2, at the set time of which God had spoken. Again, that was the key. It happened at the set time. God always has a set time. The problem is because God dwells in eternity and we live in the time realm continuum with minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. God dwells in eternity and because God spans all of eternity, God sees a set time and and God's totally patient with a set time because to God it's just, it's, God is the I am. Everything is I am. (laughs) He is the beginning and he is the end. He expands everything. But you and I are dealing with hours and, and, and days and weeks and months and years. And we're going, oh, my goodness, Lord. And God says, listen, I got plenty of patience because there's a set time. And that's when God fulfills his plan. God, what was God doing? He was waiting until the time when it was so absolutely evident to everyone that this had nothing to do with human intervention. That it had absolutely nothing to do with human contribution. That it was completely the orchestrated work of God that accomplished this particular thing. And God waited for that. He had a set time to do things in a set way, to set hour in such a way that everyone would have to step back and say, the Lord has done this. That's God. Because it wasn't Abraham, it wasn't Sarah, it wasn't their deserving or their worth, it it wasn't anyone else's manipulation, it was all God. And nobody could dispute that it was nothing other than God that did it. And many times that's just how God works. That's why he waits for that set time, so it can be done in a way where we truly know it was something the Lord set and an appointment he kept and he fulfilled. Notice again verse 1, the Lord did what he had spoken, that it was the Lord who did it. And that's why he often waits for that set time in our lives. The challenge is patiently walking in faith. Well, verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son born to him Isaac, or laughter, remember, from Genesis chapter 17. That was what he was commanded. And as well, verse 4, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him when God gave him the covenant of circumcision for he and his household in Genesis chapter 17. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made me laugh. Can you believe this? She says, all who hear it will laugh with me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children for i have borne him a son in his old age again she's he's a hundred she's 90 years old and she's nursing a baby i mean just it's humorous to even consider but what happened god rejuvenated them completely god rejuvenated their capacity to be able to conceive children he rejuvenated sarah to be able to nurse a child can you imagine 90 years old, she's never held her own child. And after 90 years and 25 years, you know, for, for the first, again, the first 65 years of her life, she's just accepted, I will be barren. I will never have a child. 
it will never happen. It's been 65 years. Apparently, this is just not God's plan for me. I wished it was. I wish I could experience what other people experience, but it's just not God's plan. Then God says, it is my plan. And then she waits it out for 25 years. And now, can you imagine to be holding, can you imagine to be holding the promise of God in her hands and nursing this child at 90 years old? Man, it's a sight to see. 90 year old has a whole new picture on seeing somebody breastfeeding. You know, 90 year old woman, she's breastfeeding her child. This child of promise and just kind of just chuckling. Can you believe what God has done? She's thinking. He's just amazed. And everybody who's looking saying, can you believe? It it's that chuckle of like laughter and rejoicing. Can you believe? You know, I have a friend of mine who oftentimes he would say he's at the Dominican Republic. He has a great accent. He's a, a doctor, just a very brilliant man. And, and he had this way every once in a while when something amazing would happen, he'd look at me and he'd say, Tony, it's almost like he's God. It's almost like he's God or something, you know. And, he, and I understood what he meant by that because he would say it at moments like this when you'd just be kind of shocked and, and just kind of chuckling at what God did. And just, it's just amazing. Almost like he's God, he says here. So here's Sarah and Abraham. They're just experiencing this blessing. God's finally fulfilled his promise. Verse 8, so the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Again, that culture, they typically would wean their child a little later than uh, we do today. Maybe in some senses in a modern world, they would typically wean their child around two or three years old, uh, sometimes upwards to four or five years old. So it was you know, kind of the toddler stage, and this was kind of a rite of passage when they would finally wean their child uh, off of the breast at that point. So they're having this big feast. It's a celebration. It's kind of a rite of passage of moving to a next stage. And imagine everybody's doting over Isaac. He's the child of promise. He's getting all this attention and this love. And Sarah's so excited and all her family and the, the friends and so forth. And Abraham as well. And verse 9 says, at that point, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham scoffing, that is Ishmael at this point now, remember the child of the flesh. He's now about 16 years old at this point, and this 16-year-old young man who was a child and product of the flesh, he's there and he's scoffing his little half-brother Isaac, the child of promise, as this celebration is happening. And therefore, Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So here Ishmael, he's kind of mocking this whole thing as he's watching it. He's no doubt jealous of what's going on. And once again, Sarah, she, you know, she's had a problem with this thing ever since they created the whole situation with Ishmael's birth. And she says, look, this child of the flesh is not going to you know, cooperate and experience and inherit the promises of God with our son of promise. So she says, he's not going to be an heir with my son. So she says, you need to get rid of this bondwoman and get rid of this child and put them out of the household and, and away from our family. And verse 11 says, and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Again, this is his son. He loves his son. Abraham is a good man, and he has emotional connection to this son. He's been raising this child for 
15, 16 years at this point. There's a deep emotional connection. And now his wife, Sarah, is saying, look, you need to put them out. Get, you, they, they can't be – they're going to interfere with the plan of God for our son to be the heir of what God's intended for our family. So Abraham, he's distraught now. This is really weighing hard on his emotions the matter was very displeasing because of his son, but notice verse 12, God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. She's right, God is saying. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed so here's abraham god says to him listen abraham i know this is difficult emotionally but he says but even though it may seem to be motivated from a wrong attitude in her heart he says what your wife is saying is right and god now tells abraham listen to her voice now interesting here's balance here back in genesis chapter 16 it was remember sarah who came to abraham with the suggestion listen Maybe what God's doing since he's restraining me from conceiving is he wants us to help in a different way. So why don't you take my maid Hagar, marry her, and conceive a child with her, and we'll raise that child like it's our own. And and Abraham does what? He listens to his wife's voice. He heeds his wife's suggestion and counsel in the situation, and he makes a really bad mistake. And he makes a really big mess of some things because he listened to his wife's advice and he listened to his wife's thoughts and counsel. Bad. And there's a time when that's a bad thing. But now what is God, God says here, Abraham, listen to her voice. Listen to your wife. Abraham, this time what she is saying, even though emotionally it doesn't jive with you and even though mentally it's difficult for you to, Abraham, listen to your wife. In other words, what her thoughts are conveying are in line with what God is doing. And this is a great thing, again, to see in balance. There's a time not to listen, I think, as a husband to our wife. And there's a time when God is using our wife to speak to us and is speaking things through our wife that God says, look, listen, this is indeed in line with what my plans are. God says, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. And I'm going to still make... A, a plan unfold for your son Ishmael. So God says, listen to what Sarah is saying at this point. And here's Abraham. What's he having to do? Here's what I see happening with Abraham. God's preparing Abraham, I think, at this point for Genesis chapter 22. Because in Genesis chapter 22, God's going to put Abraham to one of the greatest tests in his life. Right? Most of us know Genesis chapter 22 where God says, take take." Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. I just gave you the promise of God. I just gave you the thing you've been longing for forever. Now I want you to put it on the altar and let go of the whole thing. And that was a tremendous test for Abraham to trust God, to have faith, to put everything on the altar and let it all go and trust that somehow, though he could not understand it, everything in his fiber of his emotions and his thoughts would be screaming, don't do that. That's crazy. That can't be God. Kill your son. You know, imagine everything in this guy's fiber fighting against what God would be telling him to do. 
I think what you have here in Genesis chapter 21, again, God works all things together for the good. God uses all things. I think God's preparing Abraham in a small way now at this season for what's going to happen in Genesis 22. Because what's happening? Here's Ishmael. And this is hurting him. And emotionally and mentally, this is this is contradicting what he feels he would like to do. And the two are struggling to reconcile themselves in his being. And he's having to sort through and decide between what? The emotional and the logical and what is truly spiritual and what God is leading and what is right in this situation. And God is leading him to a spot where, Abraham, you got to choose. I know what your emotions are saying. I know what you feel. I know what you're thinking in your mind. But what is spiritual, what is the will of God, is you should put them out because this is a part of a process that God is doing to accomplish something. And I think God was using this moment of challenging Abraham to help him walk in obedience. Why? To get him prepared for the bigger thing, the bigger thing that was ahead. And many times that's what God does in our life. God's taken you things right now or God's brought you through things in the past and he's using these things and the things of the past as a preparatory thing for the next thing ahead. That's what God always does. He uses the things that we've gone through and he's using the things you're going through right now to get you ready for the bigger challenges that are ahead down the road so that you're more prepared to walk them out successfully having learned what you had. And the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, you might want to read there, that this is all something that God used symbolically, the casting out of the bondwoman and the keeping of Isaac, the son of promise. This was all symbolic in the Old Testament. God was using everyday circumstances. But Paul points to it in a symbolic way, looking back, saying this is a picture of how living under the law is something God wants us to put away. And living by grace and through faith and inheriting God's promises through faith is something that we are to retain and to keep and how Isaac and Ishmael represented those two different spiritual realities of living by the law and living by grace through faith. So this something very huge was hinging on this. And listen, if you find yourself right now facing something, or maybe you will tomorrow or next week, where you're having to sort through what your emotions are feeling and your thoughts are saying and what clearly the will of God is and the word of the Lord is, you know what? By faith, live by faith, not by feelings. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. We don't live by feelings. Feelings can be off. They can be deceptive. Live by faith. Live by faith and obedience. Do the right thing, the spiritual thing, the scriptural thing, and put aside at times the feelings and the thoughts. And that is oftentimes the path of God leading you into what is right. And it may be something God's using to fulfill a bigger plan and picture that you don't see. So walk that out victoriously and realize that's what God's going to use to get you ready to mature you then for what's coming next month or maybe next year that you don't even see yet. So let's stand. Let's pray together. We'll have to stop there for tonight. We'll pick it up next time. Father, thank you for your word and chance to study it, to review these portions of Scripture, to let them speak to us. And Lord, we pray your Spirit would just water the seeds of your Word that we've been able to sow into our hearts tonight, that we might be able to walk in obedience, Lord, and be faithful to you. And thank you, Lord, that when we are faithless and when we fail, that you remain faithful. And great is your faithfulness. Thank you so much, Lord, for keeping things on course, even when we begin to misdirect 
where we're supposed to be going. Lord, thank you for your great faithfulness to us and your grace in the midst of our failures. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.